This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, chef and author J. Kenji Lopez-Alt discusses his first book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Then, PW News Director Rachel Deal profiles PW's Publishing Person of the Year. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What's happening on the nonfiction list, Mark? There's not a lot. There's not a lot. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. We have, um, I think, all the way down through maybe number forty. We don't have a uh, a new you know anything debuting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is kind of interesting is uh, we have the Humans of New York, uh, which that jumped up. Uh, um, from that went from number seven to number one uh, from last week to to this week. So there was a big jump from that, and I'm not too sure exactly what that is. But and it, it's number one with a bullet. Those sales numbers yeah. are really astonishing. So ninety seven thousand copies in a week. Like, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So, yeah. And it's been out for two months. So I have no idea what what bumped it like what, that right exactly but th- those numbers are, are pretty impressive so definitely um uh, then we also have it was kind of interesting this is the first time we've seen a christian coloring book make the list and that's on the trade paper mm-hmm. it's, it's called today is going to be a great day it's published by christian arts gifts and then also it's kind of interesting to see jk rowling uh she has three books on the list on children's list as an illustrated edition a coloring book and the fantastic beast story so there's a little bit of a J.K. Rowling, and of course, there's still um, uh, some of the uh, the Harry Potter. But um, so that's that's kind of what we have. So if we do look down, just just to look at a couple of debuts, the one is you know, maybe it's called "The Songs of Jesus" uh, by Timothy Keller, and that's one of the Christian themes books that may be coming out in time for uh, for Christmas. And then the uh, Southern Living Annual Recipes from the editors of Southern Living that's at number forty two. They often have books on the bestseller list, but the subbing from the uh, Southern Living uh, magazine. And other than that, we don't have a lot. Uh, we have uh, Rising Strong by Breen Brown and Medical Medium uh, by Anthony William. That's at number 45. But uh, And at number 50, we just have a Star Wars tie-in uh, um, by Ryder Wyndham and... That's about it. Wow, so a slow week. Um, I guess it's gift-buying season, but Mm -hmm. if there's nothing big coming out that week, then people will just take their their gift dollars and go buy something else. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I was expecting to see a little bit of a a bump from Black Friday, but at least new stuff, but uh, not much. Yeah, that's interesting. And fiction, is it anything different? Um, Fiction, you know, there's not a lot going on there either. James Patterson remains at number one with Cross Justice. Uh, The top debut on the list is at number three, Tom Clancy, Commander-in-Chief. This is not about 
an alternate universe in which Tom Clancy becomes the president of the United States. It's a continuation of his series, uh, Jack Ryan books, uh, in this case by Mark Greeney. But Tom Clancy's name is real big on the cover. It takes up half the cover because they want fans to know that this is uh, an authorized continuation of the series. Uh, We say that Greeney has a lot of pages to fill in his third solo Tom Clancy novel, and that he manages it without being boring shows that he is well qualified to continue the adventures of Jack Ryan and son. So Jack Ryan Sr., the U.S. president, uh, has more of a role than in recent books, but most of the heroics are performed by Jack Jr., who's been slowly rising in the ranks of a secret organization called the Campus. And in this case, the Russian president, Valery Volodin, is uh, once again the villain. And uh, we say that Greeny capably lays out the groundwork for these machinations before setting them all in entertaining motion, and fans of military action thrillers will be well satisfied. So that's at number three on the hardcover fiction list, uh, sold about 33,000 copies. It was first week out, very respectable showing. And uh, what else do we have on there? Number seven is Precious Gifts by Danielle Steele. Um, this is a sort of family drama, family, not quite a thriller story, um, but about a woman whose husband dies suddenly and uh, he leaves a special gift to each of their three daughters, as well as the revelation that he had a fourth daughter that none of them knew about. And they're all supposed to go live with her in a crumbling chateau in the south of France. And so there's a lot of drama, new romance for the the widowed mother of these three daughters. And uh, it's a a Danielle Steele novel. It will appeal to people who are interested in uh, strong, dramatic stories with women at the center. So that's at number seven. Um, going down the list fairly far to the next debut is at number 25, James Lee Burke's House of the Rising Sun. We gave this a starred review. It said it's a stunning follow-up to 2014's Wayfaring Stranger. Um, it's about a former Texas ranger who sets off to look for his estranged son in 1916. And uh, he's, it, the journey takes over two years, and uh, he goes all across the U.S. uh, as well as elsewhere. And we say, as usual, Burke packs this epic novel with stellar characters, the best of whom are women. There's a union activist, a brothel owner. Um, We say it's easy to picture Hackberry, the main character, as an avenging angel, albeit one with tattered wings. And he has a struggle to reconcile his innate sense of goodness with his violent sense of justice. Crisp dialogue highlights this tale of redemption and the bonds of family, and the breathtaking conclusion is one that readers won't soon forget. So that's definitely one to keep an eye out for. And finally, uh, much lower on the list, we have Circling the Sun by Paula McLean down at number 47. I did want to mention this, too, because it also got a starred review. Um, She's the author of The Paris Wife, and we say that her latest showcases her immersive command of setting and character. Um, It's fictionalizing the exploits of real-life aviator and author Beryl Markham, who was in British Kenya in the early 20th century. Um, So she was a writer. She flew airplanes. uh, She married young, became a horse trainer, uh, and uh, her marriage suffers, and she's drawn into a love triangle, but uh, her professional successes increase. 
and uh, her need for freedom has further personal consequences as she goes on through her life. But it also leaves her as the first professional female pilot in the world at a time when flying was exceptionally dangerous. And she even set a record for crossing the Atlantic. Wow. So she was quite a person, a, a life that's ripe for this sort of novelization. And we say that McLean paints an intoxicatingly vivid portrait of colonial Kenya and its privileged mm-hmm. inhabitants. And it's easy for readers to identify with this woman who refused to be pigeonholed by her gender. So um, that's uh, it's interesting to see that on there. Uh, It came out actually back in July, but this is the first time that it's come up on the list. And so uh, it's it's nice to have it there. It's you know, some of these books are really getting big, big gift bumps. I'm definitely seeing some some books getting moved up the list um, from lower positions up to higher ones just by Black Friday. Like, right. you know, Glenn Beck's The Immortal Nicholas um, last week sold you know, about 10,000 copies. This week sold 17,000. So um, yeah, some doubles, little so. little gift for the Glenn yeah. Beck fan in yeah. your life. Um, so that's, that's what we've got on the fiction list. Right. Not a whole lot, but, um, you know, things... Things keep moving, and we'll see what happens as the holiday shopping season grinds on. Perfect. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt tells us how to get the most out of kitchen science. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt on the line. His new book is The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Kenji, I'm so glad you could join us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So what was going through your mind when you decided to write a cookbook? That's a big undertaking. (laughs) What was going through my mind? Um... I think when I decided to write the book, I was um, standing outside on my balcony taking a photograph of a hamburger um, in the snow in New York um, in bare feet. So I think what was going through my mind was like, my feet are cold. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe I should write a book. Um, I, no, I don't know. It was, it was it basically it was just, you know, I started writing the column on Serious Eats and um, and I started writing it not thinking it would really be anything popular, but it was just something fun that I wanted to do. And then when it turned out that people actually liked reading it, um, then it just sort of made sense to you know, to do it in a book as, as a book because there, there's a lot of things you can do um, in a book that you can't really do online. And I think, um, and I think particularly as a reader, um, you know, when someone sits down and makes a decision to like open up a book, it's it's a very different mindset than from than from when you're browsing around on the web. Um, and I think it, it allows people to, you know, it allows you to immerse yourself a bit more and get more focused. And I think you, I think you just learn better, you know, when you're in that when you're in that mindset as opposed to just sort of a, a surfing. Uh, internet mindset. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so obviously, as you said, the, uh, the the book was was kind of a departure from your from your columns, as you were just saying. It's a different mindset from surfing the net, reading a column to writing a book. What was the difference right. for you in your approach from a column to to the book? Well, you know, the most difficult part of writing the book, um, you know, for me, like the cooking part and the recipe testing and all that, you know, that's a lot of work, but it's all easy because it's just stuff I love to do. Um, and, the, and the writing is something I love to do as well. For me, the most difficult part of the book was the organization and figuring out how, you know, 
because as, as, as a web series, um, the Food Lab, it's a series of you know individual articles, and it doesn't really matter how they link together because people are going to read them in whatever order they want. Um, in a book, you have to have some sort of organizing principle that brings together all that information um, in a way that makes sense, uh, and, and, and not just a way that makes sense, but also in a way that I think is going to sort of optimize the, the usefulness of the book and also optimize the um, like the learning process for readers. Um, so figuring out how to organize the information was was the big was the big difficulty, um, um, and then actually organizing it that way, um, you know. And so in the in the end, I struck on this on this um, idea of organizing it not by course or by ingredient as a more traditional cookbook might be, but by um, sort of guiding principle um, in the techniques. So. You know, so there's a chapter on roasting, and um, and 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 once you understand how roasting works, it's it's basically the same science behind you know whether you're roasting a turkey or a prime rib or a pork loin, it's basically the same science behind there. So you know, so that way by organizing it sort of by scientific principle and um, by understanding of the knowledge, um, you can then see how all of those things are sort of interrelated um, and and realize that you know every time you're roasting something, you're basically applying the same sort of thermodynamic principles and the same physical principles. So let's talk a little bit about the recipes. And you had just mentioned the the inspiration was photographing a hamburger in the snow. Uh, let's right. talk about that. Let's talk about the simple, what we think of like the simple cheeseburger, which you right. kind of run through the sous vide, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a sous vide cheeseburger recipe in there. I mean, sous vide is, would not be my number one choice of cooking a cheeseburger, a way to cook a cheeseburger. Although if you can, if, if you're cooking a big fat cheeseburger, sous vide can be an effective method to get it nice and evenly medium rare throughout. But, you know, for me, you know, and, and this has always been sort of the point of the food lab is that I'm not trying to, um, uh, I'm not trying to, you know, do extremely modernist um, takes on food. I'm not deconstructing anything. I'm not really sort of trying to challenge the notion of what, like, a meatloaf or what a cheeseburger is, you know? Like, I think everybody knows what a meatloaf is, and everyone and people have their own ideas of it, and, and, and people grew up eating it. So it, it hits that sort of, you know, that comforting spot. And, and the last thing you want to do is really challenge what people's ideas, um, you know, and what the core of their idea is. What, what I try to do is I'll... Um, I'll think about, you know, what does meatloaf mean to people? Um, and then how do I sort of optimize the meatloafiness of a meatloaf um, without, you know, without changing it to the point where someone was going to eat it and say, you know what, this is good, but it's not, it's like, it doesn't comfort me the way a meatloaf does. Because, you know, that, that's, that's what food is really all about. I think it's about um, comforting people and about bringing people together. And, um, and you know, and, and fair enough, like a lot of modern restaurants, that's not necessarily the point, you know, that like with some modern restaurants, the point is to challenge you and to make you think about things differently. But I think for most people, when you're looking for food, you're looking for comfort and you're looking for familiarity. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's something that I think is central to the recipes I do. Like they're, they're all dishes that people know um, and understand. Um, they're just sort of optimized versions of themselves, you know. Right, so I'm I'm remembering the sort of climactic scene of the movie Ratatouille when uh, all of the the fine cooking techniques really come down to does this dish make you suddenly remember happy childhood memories? Right. Yes. <laughs> so so yes. there's I want I want I want the cheeseburger you eat from that book to be um, yeah to remind you of the cheeseburgers you loved as a kid. Um, and, and that's actually, you know, um, one of the recipes that isn't, actually isn't in the book, but is pretty popular online, um, and is actually going to be in the second book, um, is for this uh, this pan pizza recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a super simple recipe. It's, it's like a no need, no stretch. You just basically stir together the ingredients for the dough, dump it into a cast iron, like a greased cast iron pan, and let it rise in the pan, and it kind of 
spread it out to the edges on its own, and then you top it and bake it. Really, like, really easy way to make pizza. Um, and the inspiration for that recipe was that I remember when I was a kid, like going to Pizza Hut um, and really loving Pizza Hut. And you know, Pizza Hut used to cook in those little cast iron. Um, uh, carbon steel pans that, uh, um, with sort of the black edges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember them getting sort of like really greasy and really sort of like this fried extra crisp te- texture to them. Um, and then when I started working on this recipe, I went back to Pizza Hut and I realized that, you know what, like my memory of what Pizza Hut is is not the reality of what Pizza <laughs> Hut is. And like, I don't know whether Pizza Hut changed or whether it was just me misremembering, um, you know, the pizza of my youth. Sure. But the whole point was that um, when I started working on that recipe, what I was trying to do was not to emulate um, what Pizza does, Pizza Hut does now, but to make the version of Pizza Hut pizza that I remember loving as a kid, um, and to try and hit all of those, you know, all those notes that were burned in my memory as a kid. Um, so that 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 is a lot of like what I what I try and do in my recipes is figure out, you know, what is it that made this so delicious, and what's my connection to this, or what's the reader's connection to this dish. Um, and, you know, you have to, at, at every stage of the process, just make sure that that message doesn't get lost. Because um, that's, you know, that, that's the thread that's going to, that brings people along on this little scientific journey is that they have a connection to the food at the beginning. Um, um, you know, which to me, I think it actually makes it easier to learn the science. You know, what, if, you're, if you're just talking about the principles of cooking and thermodynamics and just out of the blue in a vacuum, um, you, you have to be a very particular type of person to find that enjoyable. Right. But um, I think most people find reading about lasagna to be enjoyable. So if you can, if you can give them that sort of anchor point of like this, you know, we're, we're, what we're talking about here is making the ultimate lasagna. Now here's like some of the science that's going to take us there. Um, I think those lessons become a lot more enjoyable to read and then also become a lot more, um, they, they stick in your head a lot better um, when they're in the context of something you love like that. Right. So this is science for cooks. It's not cooking for scientists. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I guess so. Um, yeah, I guess so. Although, although um, I, I find that my uh, I do have a lot of people in my audience who are scientists who are learning how to cook, um, or engineers who are trying to learn how to cook, and mm-hmm. I think I think that approach does appeal to to that type of person as well. But how do you go about explaining something like thermodynamics to the layperson, uh, or especially to people who've been cooking their whole lives? Like um, my partner, for example, is a total seat of the pants cook who's just like, throw some stuff in there and it works. And I don't particularly know why. And that's okay because it works. Um, (laughs) So so how do you how do you approach this for people who are really coming at it without any sense of the kitchen science background at all? Um, well, I mean, you know, like I said, I think, you know, anchoring it to, to popular dishes and dishes that people are familiar with um, definitely helps. Um, you know, and, and for, for me, um, a, a lot of it is visual. Um, so, you know, the book has um, thousands and thousands of pictures. Um, and, and my online column has, you know, at least a dozen pictures per, per article. But, you know, for, for me, what I always try and do is if, there, if there's, like, some really significant point I'm trying to explain, um, I'll either try and think of, like, a good, strong analogy, like something that people can connect to um or um and and or i I would i would do like a visual showing like side by side what happens if you alter one ingredient or if you if you cook something in a slightly different way you know so so with um like with a hamburger for instance Mm -hmm. um you know just to show that when you add salt to meat and it'll dissolve proteins and make them and make them link up with each other um and you know turn your hamburger into sausage what i can explain it as much as i want but it's but once you see like the side by side picture of a, of a hamburger which has had salt mixed into it versus a hamburger that doesn't have salt mixed into it. Um, it's like it's like a night and day difference. And you know the one that has salt mixed into it, you slice it open and it's like a smooth 
shiny surface that looks like a sausage, whereas the one mm. without salt mixed into it looks like, you know, tender and coarse and loose the way a hamburger should be. Mm. Um, and if you just, you know, all you have to do is see those pictures side by side, and, and I think it gets sort of burned in your head, and you're like, all right, I, I will never mix salt into my hamburger again. <laughs> um, by the same token, I will mix salt into my sausage because the sausage should be sort of springy and smooth, you know. Right. Um, but but vi- visually, I think, is, is one of the big, you know, one of the, one of the main ways. Um, and, and then also, you know, understanding that most people aren't scientists and, and understanding that, you know, science does not necessarily mean big words or, um, or you know, you don't, you don't have to call things by their, by their you know, ke- chemical elements to, to, to explain what's going on, um, at least to, to the degree um, where a home cook needs to understand it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, science can be as basic as, like, you know, um, I think in the book the example I give is, you know, if you buy yourself a new toaster and you set the toaster to four one day, um, and you real and, and you put your to- you put your bread in there and it comes out too light and then the next day you set it to six and it comes out too dark and then on the third day you hypothesize well four was too light six was too dark five will be just right and you do it and it turns out to be just right like that's science right there you know you're you're looking you're observing um, you're observing things that happen in the real world like making a hypo- hypothesis based on those observations and then testing it and that's that's really all that science is um, it can get obviously get more complicated than making toast. Um, but, you know, science does not have to be intimidating and it does not have to be something that men in lab coats do. You know, everybody, everybody can do science and, and the kitchen is like one of the best places to do it every day because, you know, people, everybody cooks. The raw ingredients are relatively inexpensive. Um, it's very easy to repeat things over and over. Um, and so, you know, once you start thinking about food that way, I think it becomes, um, I, I think it becomes sort of empowering because, you know, the more, um, the more information you have, the, the more able you are to make your own decisions and arrive at your own sort of sort of destination. You know, um, I, I think of science sort of as um, like imagine that you're looking at like a, a Google map and you're zoomed way far out and you're say you're driving from like New York to Boston, something like a, a trip that I made many times. You're zoomed way far out, so from a far away view, you can sort of see the the basic route from New York to Boston. You're like, all right, I'm going to take 95 the Massachusetts Turnpike, whatever, and then that's my basic route. Um, you know, what science does is it lets you zoom in on that map, and it, let, it gives you more and more details. Um, and then, you know, so once you start zooming in, you might see, you know what, here's like a slightly nicer looking road, or maybe maybe I'm, I can take this detour and go and get like a hot dog in Connecticut or pizza in Connecticut, um, you know. Um, and then maybe at the end you can decide, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to like keep driving past Boston and go all the way up to Maine. And, you know, and, and science, I think, is the tool that lets you zoom in on that map of, of the universe and really decide where you want to go. Um, and, in, and in the kitchen, it's the same thing. You know, if you don't understand the science, you're bound to recipes, right? You, you, you're bound to this sort of direct A to B path. Um, once you understand the techniques and the science going on behind it, um, recipes become more inspiration. And really, you know, the only boundaries you have are, are you know, your own taste, your own personal taste, and, and maybe, maybe the ingredients you have access to. But once you know how to, you know, the way in, ingredients interact with each other and with heat and with, uh, and with chemistry, um, then you can take them in any direction you want. You know, I love this idea of the roadmap of, of, of seeing, you know, where you are and where you want to end. But it's the mm-hmm. path that you take uh, that that really uh, will kind of you, you maximize your journey or at least give you an entertaining journey or, or the end that you want. Let's talk about the simple steak, which is something that so many cookbooks are devoted to. Right. How did you come across, like what to you, what technique did you arrive at? And what, what were the maybe the missteps you might have taken along the way or, or at least some of the things that you tried? 
Well, um, I mean, I, so I've been I've been writing about steak for a number of years. Um, I think the, the first big, actually, you know, I used to work at Cook's Illustrated magazine, um, and the first article I ever wrote for them was about um, hand searing steaks. Um, and at the time, I had been I had come out of restaurants, um, so I was using the classic restaurant technique, which is, you know, you have a skillet um, or a grill, and then you have an oven, and you get the skillet really hot. You sear the steak on um, on both sides. You flip it only once. Um, and then you put it into the oven to finish cooking through, um, and um, and that method works. But you know, but then when I was working on my steak recipe, I realized you know, maybe maybe the parameters of a home cook are different from the parameters of a restaurant cook. You know, and, and at a restaurant, um, particularly like a steakhouse or someplace that does a lot of steak, your main goal is to make sure that the steaks are consistent but also fast. You know, because nobody nobody in a restaurant wants to wait 45 mm-hmm. minutes between the time they ordered and the time they get to eat. Um, they, you know, so so the the goal is to cook a steak really fast, and and if if your goal is to do it fast, um, then it makes sense to sear it first and finish in the oven. Um, and if your goal is to stay um, organized, which you know, if you're if you're cooking forty steaks at a time, I can tell you it's very very difficult to keep track of which one is where. Um, so to simplifying that process is is pretty essential when you're in a restaurant kitchen. So if your goal is to simplify the process, then flipping it only once also makes sense. Um, but then, you know, at, at home, you have a little bit more freedom. Um, you're probably only cooking a couple steaks at a time. Um, and if you plan ahead, you know, you can say, all right, I'm going to eat steaks at 7 o'clock so I can start cooking, what, you know, whatever time I want to start cooking to get me there. So given that you have a little bit more freedom in the home kitchen, um, that's when I sort of started wondering, you know what, maybe these classic techniques aren't actually the best way to, to deliver the steak that you want. Um, so, you know, so then my next step in the recipe development process is sort of considering what I like in a steak um, and what the, what the goals I'm going for are. So for me, you know, a steak should have a really nice crisp crust, um, well-browned, and then it should have a nice sort of um, rosy pink, medium-rare center. Um, and I want that medium-rare center to be sort of maximized. You know, I don't – I want it to be pink from edge to center. I don't want it to be um, – uh, I, I don't want that sort of gray band of overcooked meat around the edges, which you sometimes get with a high-heat method. Um, and so um, – Eventually, the method that I landed on there um, was was the method that I use. Um, I think it, 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 actually in the book I call for it for my prime rib recipe. Um, you, uh, it's called it's called the reverse sear, um, and the idea is that you sort of you sort of do the opposite of what uh, traditionally happens. Um, so you'll start the steak in a low temperature oven, um, and you'll bring it up to close to its final serving temperature. So I would go in like a 200 to 250 degree oven. Um, and let it cook until it comes to like around 105 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, hmm. um, and this will be medium rare. And then afterwards, I take it out of the oven and sear it just before serving. Um, and uh, what you find then is that you have um, a lot more evenly cooked meat. Um, your meat retains a lot more juice, and it also becomes more tender. Um, and you know the, the main reason there is that um, well, the, the slower you, the, the the closer to your final serving temperature. Uh, you cook your meat, um, and the more gently you you get it there, um, the less of a temperature gradient there is there's going to be built inside it. So by cooking at a low temperature, we get it nice and evenly cooked throughout. Um, and then by searing at the end instead of the, the beginning, um, you make the searing process much more efficient. Um, because, uh, well, when you're searing at the beginning, um, the, the number one uh, thing that robs your energy of pan, uh, sorry, robs your pan of energy when you're searing a steak um, is not, uh, it's not, it has nothing to do with the temperature of the steak. It has to do with the moisture level of the steak. Um, it takes much more energy to evaporate moisture than it does to, um, uh, to evaporate water than it does to heat it. 
Um, so the, when you put your stake into a pan to sizzle that you're hearing, um, that's all energy that's being used up, energy that's been stored in the pan, energy that's coming from the burner, that's being used up to evaporate the surface moisture on the steak. Um, and once that surface moisture is, is evaporated, that's when your steak can start to brown. So your goal should be to get rid of that moisture as quickly and as, as efficiently as possible. Um, so by starting a steak in a low-temperature oven, um, you're actually drying out the surface a little bit um, so that when you then subsequently go to sear it, it sears really, really fast. Um, and, it, it, you know, you can, you can get similar effects. Um, I think the steak recipe in my book, um, I call for letting the steak sit out um, uh, in your fridge uncovered um, at least overnight um, and uh, up, to, up to a few nights. And the idea is that you're going to dry out the surface. Um, and it seems counterintuitive, but if you, the, the drier your steak is to start, uh, the juicier it's going to be at the end because it's going to sear that much more efficiently. Um, the, the other technique that I, that I use in my book is um, flipping the steak multiple times instead of just once. Um, so, um, and th- this is something that uh, Harold McGee from the New York Times, um, and uh, from, you know, he wrote on food and cooking in 1984, um, which is sort of the, the seminal um, cooking science book. But um, this is a method that Harold, Harold McGee has recommended. Um, so instead of flipping the steak just once, you put it in the pan and flip it multiple times, you know, basically as many times as you can, like every 15 seconds, every 15, 30 seconds or so. Um, and by doing that, your steak actually ends up cooking um, not only more evenly, um, you, you get less of that gray band around the outside. It cooks not only more evenly, um, but it also cooks faster. It cooks about 30, uh, 30% faster. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you have the time, the reverse sear method is probably the best way to, to, best way to cook a steak, um, in my opinion. If, if, if you want to serve it quickly, um, then put it in a pan and flip it, flip it multiple times as you're cooking it, um, and, and you have your steak ready in, like, record time. It's, it's faster and it's better um, in almost every way. So, yeah, steaks, I, I tend to avoid the, the traditional restaurant method of cooking steaks. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of The Food Lab, who's filling us in on his secrets for steaks and hamburgers. So obviously this is not a vegetarian cookbook. Um, but tell us a little bit about what people can get from it on the vegetable side. Um, well, I mean, there, there, is, um, there is a whole uh, big chapter on vegetables um, and, uh, and a whole big chapter on salads as well. Um, so, that, I mean, that's out of, I think there is six chapters total or seven chapters total. Um, so, you know, two, two of those are comp- pretty much 100% devoted to vegetables. Um, and, then, and then there's also, you know, the whole, there's a whole chapter on eggs, which is mostly a vegetarian chapter, uh, as well as the chapter on pastas, um, pasta and sauces, which is, which is largely vegetarian. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think, I, I think um, I, I, the, the approach I take to vegetables is it's similar to the approach I take to meats, which is, you know, dividing them down by, but within that vegetable chapter, everything is divided down by technique. So it te- teaches you, you know, the basics of uh, glazing vegetables, as well as which vegetables are good for glazing, and the basics of steaming and, and sauteing and roasting and, you know, all, all those different sort of vegetable-focused cooking methods. Um, it'll, it'll teach you the, the ins and outs of those and why you might do it one way versus the other, um, as well as, what vegetables um, it's good for, and you know, I find I find that approach to be much um, 
much more useful than sort of like a traditional a, a traditional recipe book where it'll, it'll say like, all right, here's like four ways you can cook asparagus or here are four ways you can cook peas or whatever. Um, I find, you know, learning the basic technique and then understanding which vegetables it'll work for, I think it, it gives you a lot more options in the kitchen because then when I come home with some vegetable, like, you know, if I come home with um, like sugar snap peas, um, uh, I, I know that it's going to work. Like even even if like the recipe in the book is for regular peas or for snow peas, um, I know that it's going to work with my sugar snap peas because you know the, 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 they're in that chart that explains you know what what methods are good for what. Um, so um, I, I don't know. I, I I think I think vegetarian readers will get a lot out of it. Um, at at home, I tend to I tend to eat mostly vegetarian anyway. Um, so I I do care and think a lot about vegetables. Mm-hmm. And um, let's look, talk a little bit about where you're coming from, where your background is. Uh, originally, you attended MIT and studied architecture, which feels like a long way from writing about food. Uh, <laughs> um, it is, yeah. I, so I initially attended MIT as a biology major and then, and then switched to architecture um, uh, and, yeah, ended up with a degree in structures. Um, so... You know, engineering and art was sort of, you know, both elements of my degree. Um, uh, but, you know, I started cooking while I was at school as an undergrad. Um, I, started, I started cooking in restaurants this summer after my sophomore year, um, pretty much accidentally. I was looking, you know, I was looking for a summer job as a waiter, actually, and then um, it just turned out that one of the restaurants I walked into had an open position for a cook that they were desperate to fill, um, desperate enough that they were willing to give it to someone who had zero cooking experience, um, Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> what a break. So, you know, but as soon as I went to that kitchen, like I, you know, I, I basically just fell in love with with um, cooking and with restaurant life. Um, and so I continued it uh, part time um, while while I was an undergrad, uh, and then I went full time into restaurants um, as soon as I graduated. Um, worked in restaurants for about five years. Uh, but um, the um, you know the one thing I missed most in those restaurants um, is what well was the science element. You know, because I, I come from a, a science. A, family of scientists and you know science was the biggest part of my education growing up and I've always loved science since I was a kid um, so you know and, and you don't really get much of an opportunity to practice science in a restaurant kitchen just because you know production is your main goal and the rest of you know speed efficiency getting things done is your main goal in a restaurant kitchen which is not necessarily a good environment for doing science um, so uh, eventually um, you know after after a number of years working in restaurants I, I decided you know what I'm gonna I'm going to leave the restaurant world, um, but I need to figure out some way to to combine both of these things, the food and, and the science, because I don't really want to give either of them up. Um, and luckily, um, it turned out that Cook's, Illust- Cook's Illustrated was hiring um, recipe developers at the time, um, and I happened to live in Boston, so it just it just sort of made sense. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like the whole path from, um, from science to cooking to where I am now has been a big series of sort of happy accidents, you know, um, I accidentally became a cook and then it just happened that I worked in the same city as this great, great food science magazine. And, um, you know, and it, it's just a bunch of happy accidents that, that, that worked out. Um, um, you know, I, I think obviously my interest in both of those things played into it. Um, but, uh, but I, yeah, I do consider it, consider it very lucky that I ended up where I am today. So um, I've been a big fan of Cook's Illustrated and America's Test Kitchen for a long time. What's it like working there? Is it is is it basically the way they make it look in the pictures? Because it always seems like such a fun, interesting, thinky kind of place. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, I mean it basically is like what you would imagine it to be. Um, yeah, it's a, you know it's a whole group of cooks who are really interested in learning how things work, and um, and yeah, and so we. 
hang out and come up with experiments and perform them. Um, you know, obviously there's the, the whole production element. It, it is like a functional magazine that has a product to sell, so you have to do certain recipes and you have to test them and, and, and you have to write the stories and all that stuff. But um, but for me, it was a, you know, it was a pretty ideal job. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it, the, the only thing, the only thing that I would have had different at Cook's Illustrated um, is, well, A, the pay. Everybody wants more pay. Well, sure. But, um, <laughs> Uh, and um, and B, you know, I, I find um, that the, the one the one downside with Cook's Illustrated is that, and and, and this can be uh, seen either way. I think it could be good, it could be bad. Um, is that um, you know they have a lot of different writers, but um, but they have one sort of singular Cook's Illustrated voice. And you know, no matter what your own personal writing style is, um, you're going to end whatever you write is going to end up sounding like a Cook's Illustrated story um, because things get so heavily edited and shaped there. Um, so you know, I, th- I think that's probably a good thing for their overall brand and for the reader. Um, uh, it's not so great if you know, as, as an individual writer, you have you you have, you actually have sort of you know aspirations to be. Um, uh, I'm, I'm more personal writer. You know? So you had mentioned at the beginning of the interview that uh, you'd hinted about book two. How do you go from from writing such a definitive book uh, like Food Lab to whatever's released, next? Um, was actually um, only part of the uh, of the book that I submitted to my publisher. Um, and originally, we were actually thinking of making it into a two volume box set. Oh, wow. um, and then, it, you know, and then we realized at a two volume box set, the cheapest we'd be able to sell it would be like a hundred bucks. And, and that just seems sort of counter to the spirit of, um, of, of what the food lab is. You know, it's not, it's not meant to be anything precious. It's not anything that uh, is for, you know, fancy people. It's for, it's, it's a book that's meant for everyday people and, and for people to, to use in their own kitchens and, and to not worry about getting a little bit messy um, so it, it just seemed a little bit ridiculous to sell a cookbook for a hundred bucks, um, which is why we d- decided in the end to condense it into one volume. Um, uh, so, the, so the volume that you have is um, is material from both the first and the second volume that were ri- originally going to be released. Um, mm. But I still have like another you know six hundred pages of of, uh, of stuff <laughs> wow. that um, that needs to come out at some point. So um, so right now I'm in the process of adding more to it. Um, and uh, and so that stuff plus the new stuff will eventually be a volume that's basically the same sort of size and scope as the one that was released. Um, and hopefully it'll be out in uh, I believe fall of 2018 is what we're aiming for. Um, but maybe maybe 2017. Not it's not 100% sure yet. But that uh, that gives you time to take lots more photos and do lots more recipe testing. Yeah, I have to do. I have to, exactly. Yeah, I have. I have. Um, I'm, I'm putting it off until after the new year. But starting January, I have like. Probably a good solid six months of uh, midnight to 4 a.m. recipe testing and photo taking. Why those hours in particular? That's just when you have time for it. Uh, that's when I have time. Yeah, you know, because I have my because my my regular day job. I'm the you know managing culinary director at Serious Eats. Um, so I have I have to write stories for Serious Eats and and edit everything for Serious Eats and you know all all the things that come with a full time job. So I spend my days doing Serious Eats stuff and then. Um, you know, and and this the the book, the uh, the the one that's out now. Um, some of the material comes from Serious Eats. Um, the rest of it was all yeah, written written and tested between midnight and four a.m. in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's it like, sort of having your whole cooking process under scrutiny all the time? Are there ever times when you just you make a mistake and you think, well, let's just pretend that never happened? Or? <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I think that's that's. That's like one of the key parts of science is that every everything has to be open to scrutiny, and um, 
you know, and, and like I say in the introduction of the book, if, if people read through this book and just take everything for granted, then like I haven't done my job. You know, I want people to question everything that's in it and retest it at home themselves. And if, you know, if, if five years from now, if there aren't like at least a dozen things that I wrote in there that turned out to be completely false because someone proved it otherwise with really good rigorous testing, you know, then, then I think people are not reading it uh, with enough scrutiny. Um, and, and that's just the nature of science, you know, like you, you, you get ever close, you get a more and more detailed picture of the universe each time you dive into something. But, you know, it's always possible that there are mistakes and, and that your understanding of one thing is not, you know, is not completely accurate. Um, and, and so, so yeah, no, I, I welcome the scrutiny, you know, I want, I want people, you know, and, and especially, especially because if, if, if I did not, you know, if I try and like stick my fingers in my ear and not listen to anything new that people have to say, then that means I've also like stopped learning, which is sort of, I think a silly way to go about life, you know, mm. um, you know, lear learning new things is, is the only, is what helps you, what, what helps you do better in the future. Um, so I, I like the scrutiny. And even if, even if it sometimes means that it turns out saying I wrote is completely wrong. <laughs> and it sounds like, as you said, you have a lot of scientists who are uh, probably pretty eager to get their hands on this and start proving you wrong. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> We've been talking with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. You can find his book, The Food Lab, in stores right now and test all of its recipes for yourself. Kenji, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about PW's Publishing Person of the Year. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly's editors and contributors, and today PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us about PW's Publishing Person of the Year. Hello, Rachel, and that publishing person this year is Sunny Maida. Yeah, that's correct. So how, you know, every year we, we, we pick a person of the year. There's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of hats thrown in. What was it about Sonny that, that made him rise to, to the top this year? Well, I think one thing that sort of highlighted um, the choice this year and, and his selection, or I should just say drove it to an extent, um, you know, Knopf celebrated its 100th anniversary this year, which on the one hand is, you know, is a milestone um, that you could maybe say didn't have anything to do with him, but I think that would be a mistake. And, and I think what the the birthday sort of brought to light and reminded people about is um, how Knopf is unique um, insofar as it's not just a literary imprint that's been around a really long time. It's an imprint that has, and it's a name in publishing that sort of has maintained its um, its stature as a place that's known for doing really high quality, really lauded, critical books. But it's also a place that publishes a lot of bestsellers. Right. And so I think in that respect, it's unusual in the industry. It really stands out. I mean, I think you can, you know, you can think about a lot of other sort of um, imprints. And, and I use the word imprint somewhat loosely because Knopf has evolved over the years and now it's a it's a group um mm. at Random House but but um you know if, if you think about it as as an imprint and it's um it does it stands apart because I think a lot of other imprints that sort of have the same cachet that that Knopf does um you know they're not known for 
frankly, publishing as many um, as many bestsellers. And right. you know, and they're not known. I, th- I think Knopf is also known for being a publisher that's aggressive about marketing and and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of other literary imprints don't have that reputation either. Um, mm. If if you think about some imprints that might be sort of held in the same category and light as as Knopf in terms of you know the quality of the books it does and and the type of literary books that it right. does. And of those hundred years, Sunny Mehta, who came on in 1987, has been there for about 30 of those. So, right. so, so how has his position there influenced uh, Kanoff? You know, I think it would be simplifying things to say that he, it wasn't commercial before he got there. I mean, that's not true. I think he just, um, he made it more commercial. Right. And it's interesting, I think, when you think about the role of, someone in his position, you know, sort of the editor-in-chief who's kind of overseeing the editorial at the entire group um, and sort of has a hand a little bit in the business, but, you know, primarily in the editorial. Um, When you think about how does this person's influence sort of affect the output, and and, um, I think there are subtle ways that it happens. You know, I mean, part of it, I think, is giving people, giving your employees the, the room they need to make the decisions they need to make and supporting yeah. them. And, you know, I think sort of simple things that probably are important at every workplace. But um, I certainly think that when you look at the Knopf group, which is now, you know, there's Knopf, um, they've merged with Doubleday. So you have the Knopf Doubleday. You have you right. know, these, um, and one thing we didn't really get to talk about in the piece is that when Matter was brought on as publisher, you know, he was really known in the UK as a paperback publisher. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that he did is sort of he reinvigorated and um, vintage and really, I think, strengthened the paperback program. Mm-hmm. And he was not the individual behind the acquisition of Fifty Shades of Grey, but certainly, you know, that book was published by Vintage. Mm-hmm. And there is an important element to this idea that and I, I think it, it matters less to the consumer, but, it, you know, it's important in the business. You know, there's a certain need at a place like Knopf to sort of maintain the integrity of the Knopf name. Right. And so to be able to sort of publish books like Fifty Shades of Grey, which probably aren't necessarily associated with that Knopf name, but are coming out of the same division, you know, that's important, too. And I think that's something that you're sort of figuring out in a role like his of of how to be able to publish books that won't quote-unquote sully you know the the name of Knopf but um you know are books that you think are good and that you you know think have a real audience so I think that's one part of what he does I mean you know there's unquestionably I think another part and I didn't get to mention all of them in the piece but I mean if you look at his own list of authors I think it really speaks to what the sort of the kind of list that Knopf has been able to to publish and the group has been able to publish in terms of sort of the breadth on the literary end and also sort of on the commercial end. And, you know, I mean, he's his own authors include everybody from Toni Morrison to Kazuo Ishiguro to Cormac McCarthy, you know, to Stieg Larsson mm-hmm. and uh, and Joe Nesbo and Carl Hyacin. So, you know, it's a, it's a real mix. And I mean, in terms of if you want to look at sort of things that he did on his own, you know, as an acquiring editor. I mean, he he acquired uh, the Millennium Trilogy, Steve Larson's books. So, I mean, that, you know, in and of itself is, they're huge money makers right. for, sure. um, you know, for the, for the company. Right. So um, it's, you know, those are the kind of accolades that 
if somebody was an editor, you know, those are the things that you rest your career on. And, you know, he's got, he's got a long list of those. I mean, you know, you talk to him and published American Psycho and it's, it's a really, really long list of. And diverse. Yeah. And diverse. So you, you, you spent some time with him. What's he like? His offices. What are the offices and what's he like? Uh, the offices are filled with a lot of books as you'll see (laughs) in the, uh, in the issue and in the photo. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's not somebody who enjoys, um, talking about himself as as I said in the piece. Um, and he's known, he doesn't do a lot of press interviews. Right. I mean, he doesn't really talk to the press and that's something he's also known for. You know, I don't, I don't think that, and again, um, I don't say this in, I don't think he's particularly fascinated with the process of publishing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, I don't know if that's fair. I think it's something that, you know, he, I don't know that it's the thing he wants to talk about. Yeah. Um, and I think what he wants to talk about are the books themselves. Right. Um, right. I mean, and I saw that, you know, we were, when we were talking, I was asking, you know, a lot of questions about how certain things happened and timelines and that kind of thing. And, you know, actually the, the book that, um, had recently just won, um, the national book award for poetry for, um, that Knopf published uh, voyage of the sable Venus, you know, it, it was it was in the room and it was I think on not his bookshelf behind him but it was sort of on a on a table, you know and he he asked me to pick it up pick it up and hand it to him and you know he was going over the the package that it was in and he was getting really excited about the book and I think that is sort of that shows um, you know I think you know people talked about it constantly um, when I asked you know when I asked them what what makes him so good at what he does, you know, and I, I think it's easy to sort of dismiss how nice it is to have good looking books. Um, but you know, that was one thing people always came back to. And I think also this notion that not just caring about it, but kind of getting excited about it in a, in a way that sort of, uh, that is, that you see the, you know, that passion is there that, that he really cares about it that i mean he's excited about it because he really loves it um not just because you know it's impressive or you know right. um so i think you know that showed and i i think it's been something that's important as you know he's had such a, a long tenure um in in this job um i think it's one thing that that indicates why um you know, he's stayed good and why the division has sort of stayed good at what it does because he hasn't lost interest, Um, which, you know, I think publishing can be a really exciting industry. Um, I think there are probably aspects of the job that aren't so always so glamorous, but um, I think whatever you do, you know, maintaining a passion for it um, and not just phoning it in is hugely important, you know, to making sure things don't become stale to make, you know, I, and I think, you know, in terms of ensuring that your, um, your staff keeps sort of remains excited and competitive and, um, and really cares about what they're doing. And, you know, I definitely noticed that in the picture that we have of him in his office, every publisher is going to have books on their bookcase, but his, a lot of his are face out. Uh, they're not, they're not just spine out, but you can see the covers. And you know, to me, that's a sign of someone who really cares a lot about what goes on the cover of the book, this commitment to the physical product, the design, um, you know, that it looks good, that it feels good, that it's easy to read. 
you know, I, I look at the covers on Knopf books and I just assume that the typography is also great. Mm. Uh, you know, this real sense of the book as a beautiful object. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you hear, you hear him talk about things like typography and, and that kind of thing that, um, look, I'm not going to say that there aren't, uh, you know, lots of other editors in chief and, and sort of publishers out there who really do care about that. But, uh, sure. you know, I think um, it's, it's unique to to see that kind of thing, um, to see such attention to detail still. You know, and, and one thing I think that's that's happened over the years is that, you know, the industry has gone through, you know, a number of shockwaves since he started at, at Knopf, you know, from, and I talked about it with some people who, you know, who uh, work for him and have worked for him for a long time, how he's overseen the... Um, that division, you know, since th- through the the rise of the uh, the big chain retailers, you know, through the ebook revolution, and and I think one thing you'll see is that, you know, when he was taking over, there was this real feeling that if you have this small window to attract a customer at a huge Borders or Barnes and Noble, you really have to make your book stand out because it's going right. to be on a table and mm-hmm. it's going to be competing with all these other books. And, and right. that was a concern at that time, you know. And then, of course, during the the heyday of eBooks, um, and now the sales of eBooks are sort of flattening out. You know, there was this feeling: well, the physical product doesn't matter anymore at all because people are just going to be reading everything digitally. And I think now what you're seeing to an extent um, as ebook sales, you know, do sort of um, seem to be reaching this point where they're not they're not rising so significantly anymore. And they're reaching some think it may be this sort of saturation point is that people do still really care about um, their physical books. And, and that means they care. They, you know, they want to hold them. And I think, you know, they care about how they look. And, you know, to an extent, I, th- I think that things like covers and. Um, you know, the paper stock and those things, like, you can dismiss right. it, but uh, they matter, right. I think. Um, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I don't think they matter just to some really small set of collectors or that kind of thing. Right. Um, no, it matters to anyone who picks up a book. Yeah. And I think it matters, you know, in, in a way that maybe some people don't realize why, you know. Um, but certainly it um, it does sort of drive you to to zero in on right. this title over that title. Um, so I think, you know, it's interesting to see how um, for so long that idea was kind of taking a backseat to um, concerns about price. And, and look, there's always going to be this push-pull. But um, I think one thing that's interesting now, you know, in the in the publishing industry as opposed to some other kind of creative industries is it does seem that, um, that the... Um, that the emergence of a cheaper digital option um, isn't going to necessarily, you know, um, make the the older, more expensive print option obsolete. Right. And and I, you know, I think that's really a big question still in other areas. I mean, I, you know, I think when you look at what's happened in the music industry where a lot of people can make the argument that, you know, album covers are beautiful things and the album itself is, you know, a real collector's item. Like, it hasn't weathered the... Um, I don't think it's weathered the the digital storm as well right. as, as the book. Um, right. You know, and, and I think people want their music portable in a way that um, I don't know 
you know, that there are advantages to having the book portable, but I think that people are still seeing a lot of preferences in terms of having the physical thing. But books were always more portable than, say, phonograph records. You know, the portability of music is, is a relatively new thing. But when we're talking about the kind of paperbacks that Sonny Mehta was publishing and has continued to publish, uh, you know, those, those are very portable. Um, that's, that's a book that you put in your purse and you it carry is. it with you. And so I, I think that, I think that books have, um, have already competed pretty strongly in the portable entertainment marketplace. And so I'm, I'm not too worried about the ebook destroying print altogether, but it, it certainly seems like, you know, in, in that time between 2008 ish and, and now, um, having someone at the head of Knopf who was so dedicated to the physical book was felt in some ways like a gamble. And it seems like that gamble's really paid off for them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think, um, it sounds maybe cliche to say, but at the end, you know, it's, it's about more than anything else, the, the books you publish and, you know, and if, and they're good and if readers like them. And I think, you know, when you look at the mix of sort of awards, their titles win and, um, you know, you look at the sales of those titles as well. It's, um, it's a pretty impressive lineup. Um, so you can't really, you can't argue with that. And, And so I think, you know, in some ways, this was the year that he was named person of the year, but you know, was it uh, something that was sort of a nod to a long career of, you know, an, an impressive body of work over time. And, and I think, um, yeah, you know, this, again, I think one of the hardest things in this industry is remaining relevant and also sort of, you know, sort of, having these strong repeat performances, you know, I I mean, I think, you know, what you see, um, is, you know, this, you know, one imprint can have a great year, but then fall off or, you know, you have a good five years or something. Um, and that's not really been the case there. They've, they've consistently, they've consistently sort of beat the odds in that, um, in that arena. So, so that's really impressive and, and something that you can't dismiss. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about him. And uh, this is all in our December 7th issue, along with our other notables of yes. the year. So definitely worth checking out. Definitely worth checking out. We we have some other great people in there who were doing um, interesting things this year and important things. So check it out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Rachel. Okay. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delightful author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 